you've probably heard or seen the phrase before, keep calm and carry on. But what you may not know is where it originated. Uh, The phrase originated as a slogan in the spring before World War II. Anticipating dark days ahead, the British government designated a poster to hang in areas that were being targeted by German bombers. Around 2.5 million copies were printed, but not a single one of them were ever posted. Why? Well, officials had last-minute doubts about whether the content was too patronizing or obvious. They also couldn't settle on an appropriate time to hang the posters. Except for a select few, the posters were eventually destroyed. Fast forward 60 years to the year 2000, and one of the remaining posters was discovered by a bookseller who bought a box of old books, and inside one of the old books was one of these posters. Not realizing its rarity or its value, the owner of Barter Books in the English town of Alnwick put it up on the wall over the cash register. Pretty soon, customers were asking about where they could buy a similar poster, and the shop's owners, Stuart and Mary Manley, decided to print copies. Little did they know how fast Keep Calm and Carry On would spread. Keep Calm products have flooded the marketplace. The phrase has been plastered on every printable surface imaginable, from T-shirts to mugs to keychains to hats and posters, you name it. Keep calm and carry on. Keep calm and carry on is the lesson that the disciples learn in John chapter 6 when Jesus walks to them on water. In fact, because of the power, person, and presence of Jesus, we too can keep calm and carry on. John chapter 6, we're going to begin reading in verse 14, and if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This story begins immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. You might remember that Jesus originally crossed the Sea of Galilee to get away from the crowd so that he and the disciples could get some rest and rejuvenation. But that never happened because the crowds followed him. And so Jesus performed his fourth sign by miraculously feeding the multitude with five loaves and two fish. Now John tells us that the crowd intended to come and make him king by force. And this time Jesus is able to escape the crowd and go up on a mountainside by himself. 
This account of Jesus walking on water is also shared in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel. And to get the full story, the full picture, it would help you to read all three accounts. Because each gospel details different notes of the story, sharing what was most important for their original audience and for their literary purpose. For example, only John records that the people attended to make Jesus king by force. Only Mark records that Jesus looked out and saw the disciples struggling to row with their oars on the stormy lake. And only Matthew records what happened with Peter that night. Matthew also adds the detail uh, that Jesus' purpose in going up the mountainside by himself was to pray. Instead of the downtime that Jesus had expected, you'll remember last week that Jesus had spent all day teaching, sharing, loving, and healing. But now that he has sent the crowd away, he's found some time to, to process. You just got to think that he feels the pressure from the crowd trying to make him king. And although he knew it wasn't right, you, you've got to wonder if Jesus was flattered by the accolades he was receiving. It was enticing, maybe even tempting, because how many of you know that sometimes temptations come dressed as great opportunities? And so Jesus knew that he needed to get away so he could reconnect with his father. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And so it was this practice, it was this habit of, of getting away and spending time with his father that shows up a number of times in the Gospels. This getting away helped Jesus realign his will with his father's. Spending time with his father helped restore him and reinvigorate him for the tasks that were still in front of him. Can you imagine the pressure that he was under? The weight that he carried every single day. He constantly poured himself out. He was often ridiculed and criticized for it, and he needed those times of replenishing. And Jesus knew what to do and where to go when he was drained. Now, this isn't the, the big idea for us today, but we can learn a lot from Jesus' example in this story. And so I simply want to ask, is this a part of your life? If it was important enough for Jesus, how much more important is it for us? When the day's been hard, when we've received bad news, when temptations are, are knocking on our door, we find that, that our tanks are, are near empty, we need to get away. We need to find a, a quiet place, a place where we can be alone with God and commune with him in prayer. But where were the disciples? Matthew 14, tells us that Jesus had instructed the disciples to get into the boat and to go on ahead of him to the other side. Do you understand what's happened? Jesus sends the disciples out. Jesus knows the storm is coming. They were following his instructions and they still encountered a storm. Storms will come. Verse 16 says, by now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. Have you been there before? 
Uh, Most of us don't like the dark. I'm convinced that one of the reasons that the winter months are so hard on people isn't because of the cold, but because of the darkness. Do you struggle with the dark? The darkness of grief? The darkness of depression? The darkness of being alone? The darkness of feeling alone even when you're surrounded by others? The darkness of despair? The darkness of uncertainty? In the dark, all we want is a flicker of light that shows us the way we need to go. Have you experienced a time in your life where where you had no sense of God's presence with you? A time where you called out or cried out and, and you got nothing back? I hope that you've had those times where, where you knew he was there, where you've felt his touch, you felt his presence, you knew that he was providing for you, but this isn't one of those. This is one of those times where, where you felt like God had sent you for a reason and for a purpose, but now it seems like you're all alone. And the darkness just seems to be too much. And if that wasn't bad enough, verse 18 says, a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. Again, have you been there? It's not enough that the darkness has has overtaken, but, but now let's add more to it. There's no money in the account, and you get hit by a driver who doesn't have any insurance. Your teenager is rebelling, and you find evidence of drugs in their room. Those nagging health problems lead to tests, and and then the doctor tells you those words that you never want to hear, cancer. Your marriage is struggling, and then you learn of your spouse's affair. You've learned to never say it couldn't get any worse because it can and it has, and you've got the t-shirt to prove it. Been there, done that, and it didn't turn out like it was supposed to. What do you do when it's dark and you're alone and the wind starts to howl and the waves start crashing over the side of the boat? I think I know what you do because I do it too. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you get in there and you try harder. You dig deeper, you give more effort. You grab that oar and you pour and you pull faster and harder and longer. Why? Because we're not quitters. Our parents taught us to to never quit and so we, we dig down deeper. Or we get creative, right? We start thinking how we can turn this situation into a win. How can I come out of this even better than when I went in? We're going to figure this thing out on ourselves on our own. We don't need anyone else to help. We don't need to rely on anyone else. You ever wonder why we don't just turn the boat around and go with the wind? Maybe it's because we're stubborn. Maybe it's because we've been here before. This isn't the first storm that we've tried to row in. But mostly, it's because Jesus said to take the boat to the other side. I hope that you understand today that just because Jesus told you to do it doesn't mean that there won't be periods of darkness or strong winds or crashing waves. Sometimes, 
Sometimes doing what Jesus tells us to do will put us right in the middle of the storm. And unfortunately, we tend to believe, as a matter of fact, some will even preach that if we let Jesus lead our lives, then life will just always get better. That life will always be fine. If you turn everything over to him, then life is just going to be perfect. Doesn't always happen, does it? These guys did what Jesus told them to do, and look what happened. They followed his instructions, and they still came into the darkness and the wind and the waves. These kind of storms were frequent on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is really more properly understood as a lake. It's relatively small, about 13 miles long and about seven miles wide at its widest point. But it's 150 feet deep, and the shoreline is 680 feet below sea level. But the surrounding geography makes it susceptible to sudden storms, oftentimes violent storms. To the north lies Mount Hermon in the Golan Heights, and winds sweeping across the land come up and over the mountains, creating a downdraft over the lake. You combine this with a thunderstorm that appears suddenly over the mountains, and the water stirs into violent 20-foot waves. The sea can be calm one minute and violent the next. So these men didn't set out in a storm, and they didn't expect one either. But a storm came anyway. We've said it before, you're either in a storm, coming into a storm, or heading out of a storm. Which one is it for you? But but I think maybe the question that we wrestle with even more than that is if God is good, then why does he allow storms in my life to begin with? You ever wondered that? It's hard to know exactly why certain things happen, but Scripture does share some reasons why storms come into our lives, and sometimes it's to strengthen our character. Character is like the foundations of a house. It's unseen yet essential. And God will build our character through the storms of life. In Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, Paul says that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Sometimes God allows stores, storms to grow us spiritually because storms force us to rely on God's strength rather than our own. And so we learn to endure, persevere, and submit to God so that he can make us more like Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, says, there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. That, that, that these trials, these storms have a, a growing potential, a refining potential in our lives. And sometimes God allows storms because it's in those storms that he reveals himself to us. In the book of Job, Job is a righteous man who endures unimaginable suffering. Everything that he loves, everything that he's worked for, it's all taken away from him. But he never curses God. In fact, at the end of Job, in Job chapter 42, verse 5, he's speaking to God, his creator, and he says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. 
It was through his suffering that he was able to see who God really is. And what Job realized is storms have a way of recalibrating our perspective of God and the way that he works. And sometimes that understanding comes when we go through a storm and we're able to look back and see how he brought us through. It's only then that we realize that his strength was sufficient and his purpose was good. And what we see as the disciples are in the boat and Jesus begins to come to them, what we see is that because of Jesus' power, his person, and his presence, we can keep calm and carry on even in the middle of storms. First, notice his divine power. His divine power. Verse 19 says, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. There are some people who claim that Jesus didn't really walk on the water. The phrase there in Greek that Jesus walked on the water can mean that he walked on water or he walked by the water. And so some people believe that Jesus never performed a miracle, that there is no sign in this account. Their explanation is that the boat just kind of hugged the shoreline and Jesus walked by close on the beach. That the boat was close enough to the shore that he just kind of walked out to him and got into the boat with a miraculous event. Maybe, maybe he just surfed on a patch of ice. That's the conclusion of a 2006 scientific article published in everyone's favorite bedtime reading material, the Journal of Paleolimnology. The article was titled, Is There a Paleolimnological Explanation for Walking on Water in the Sea of Galilee? Dr. Doron Knopf, an expert in oceanography and limnology, which is the study of lakes, he speculates that an odd combination of atmospheric conditions may cause rare patches of floating ice on the Sea of Galilee. According to his calculations, the chances of this floating ice phenomenon happening are less than once every thousand years. So the odds are just slightly higher than a 16 seed beating a 1 seed in the NCAA tournament. But those odds did not deter him from questioning whether Jesus walked on water. So perhaps Jesus just surfed on a patch of floating ice. To be sure, I don't know which one would be more amazing. Surfing on a piece of ice across the Sea of Galilee would take miraculous balance. And if those patches of ice only appear once every thousand years, then it would be miraculous timing too. I'd love to see that high-def, slow-motion, instant replay of, of Jesus walking on water or surfing on a patch of ice across the sea. But Dr. Knopf's theory may reveal more about the human psyche than the circumstances behind Jesus' miracle. We have a, a natural tendency to explain away what we cannot explain. And that's why most of us miss the miracle. Now, these wild theories deserve no serious consideration for at least a few reasons. One, if Jesus was simply walking on the shore, then how do you explain why the disciples were frightened and terrified? It only makes sense if Jesus came to him in the middle of the lake. Two, if this wasn't a miracle, then there's no good reason for John to include this in his gospel. 
We've already established that John organizes his gospel around these seven signs of Jesus. So if this isn't a sign, if this no way reveals who God is, which are the purpose of these signs, then why does John take up ink and parchment to include a detail of the disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee, something that they would constantly do? Number three, John says that they were headed across the lake and that they had rowed for several miles. It only makes sense that they are in the middle of the lake. And whereas the the Greek in John's account can mean by the water or on the water, the language used in Matthew's account and Mark's account leave no ambiguity. That Jesus walked on the water. This is a sign, a miracle, that Jesus is displaying that he possesses the power of God. He has power over nature. In John chapter 2, He displayed this power by turning water into wine. Now he stands on the water. For years, there uh, was a late-night talk show that you guys probably watched, David Letterman, and there was a segment that he he had called Will It Float? The concept was simple. You take a random item, such as a brick of Velveeta cheese or a cantaloupe, and you guess whether or not this item will float. And so the way it would work is Dave and... and, uh, Paul would make their guesses, and uh, then they would drop it into a pool of water, and they would see whether or not this item would float. They featured this segment 195 times, and David Letterman correctly guessed whether or not it floated 124 times, or 64% of the time, he got it right. How do you think you would do? All right, let's try this. A half gallon of ice cream, sink or float? Floats. Yep. A fully packed suitcase, sink or float? Floats. A George Foreman grill, sink or float? Yeah, sinks. A 32-ounce jar of mayonnaise, sink or float? Sinks. A roll of duct tape, sink or float? Sinks. All right, an eight-pound bowling ball, sink or float? Floats. So what about a first-century Jewish male? In his book, The Grave Robber, Mark Batterson writes that if a person could sprint at 67 miles per hour, they could run across the surface of water without sinking. In case you're wondering how fast that would be, the fastest recorded speed by a human is Jamaican sprinter Usain Bolt, who topped out at just under 28 miles per hour. So if Usain Bolt can't do it, I think there's little chance that you or I could do it either. Humans can't walk on water. It's impossible. But God can. No matter how much we would like to fly or walk on water or or you name it, We can't suspend the laws of nature, but God can because he's the one who created those laws. If he has the power to create those laws, then he has the power to suspend those laws if he chooses. So Jesus walks to them, and verse 19 continues and says, and they were frightened. For the disciples, it has been a long, full day. They are tired. They're a long way away from land in the middle of the lake. It's now the early hours of the morning. There's a heavy storm. 
There's a howling wind, huge waves. And then to their amazement, it appears that someone is coming towards them, walking on the water. Is it any surprise that they are frightened and terrified? You would be too. Listen, don't confuse God's delays with God's denials. Jesus appeared in the storm when the time was right, not necessarily when the disciples wanted him to. We live in a day and age where we want everything to happen right here, right now. We live in an instant age of microwaves and drive-throughs and fast food. We, we communicate directly through instant messages. We have information on the tips of our fingers in an instant, thanks to Siri and Alexis and Google. We have instant or same-day delivery through Amazon. Everything today seems faster and quicker than ever before. But remember this, God is never in a hurry. The storms of life never take God by surprise like they so often surprise us. And in response to our storms, sometimes God makes us wait. But remember, God is seldom early, but he's always on time. In Psalm 40, verse 1, the psalmist says, I waited patiently for the Lord. The psalmist knows that help is available to him, but it wasn't automatic. He had to learn and wait, and when the time was right, the solution came. He continues in verse 2, he lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. God is seldom early but he's always on time. Not only does Jesus possess divine power, but secondly, I want you to notice that he identifies as the divine person. Jesus senses their fear, and he immediately calls out to them in verse 20, it is I, don't be afraid. We probably would have called out, hey guys, it's me. In Greek, it's the words, ego, a me. Literally, Jesus says, I am. Does that sound familiar? I am. In the Old Testament, God spoke to Moses through a burning bush. He told him to go back to Egypt and to take his people out of that land, and Moses responds to God and asks, well, well who should I say sent me? And do you remember how God responds? He says, tell them, I am sent you. I am. The Greek is the same, ego, me. It was a statement of deity. It was a statement of self-existence. A statement that God used for himself a number of times and one that Jesus repeats on multiple occasions in John's gospel. Just as there are seven signs in John's gospel, there are seven I am statements in John's gospel. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I am. Jesus shows the disciples his divine power by doing something that they had never seen done before, something that only God can do. And then he announces to the disciples who he is. I am. 
And every time that Jesus uses these words, he's declaring himself to be God. And this isn't like in English where we casually use the words I am. In Greek, there were other ways that he could use I am without using the divine declarative. But Jesus' answer is always a definitive, a go, a me, I am. So he says, it's me. I am. Don't be afraid. God himself is here, and he has everything under his control. Don't be afraid. He is the divine person. The imagery, the language, and action in this story all echo the descriptions of God that we find in the Old Testament. In Job chapter 9, verse 8, God is described as he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. And so what God is poetically described as doing in the Old Testament, Jesus historically does in the New Testament. So so any teaching, any doctrine, any view of Christ that puts Jesus as anything less than God is a false teaching that must be rejected. John could not have stated the deity of Jesus any clearer. Jesus is God. He is the divine person. Third, take him into the boat. Willing? Really? It almost seems like they paused for a moment before deciding to let him in. The New Living Translation says, then they were eager to let him in the boat. The ESV says, then they were glad to take him into the boat. The NRSV says, then they wanted to take him into the boat. Those translations better capture the disciples' response. Jesus, we need you in our boat. We don't want to go anywhere without you. We long for your presence. And so today I simply want to ask, are you willing to let Jesus in the boat or are you eager to let him in the boat? Are you more like the bumper sticker that says, Jesus is my co-pilot? Or would you prefer to sing Jesus take the wheel? Why don't most people want Jesus in the boat? It's because if they let him in the boat, they know that he's not interested in sitting in the back and riding along. If he's in the boat, he wants to guide it. He's the captain. But most of us, we only want him around in an emergency. It's like a life jacket that that we know is there, but, but we only plan on using it if we're about to drown. We like having him on call because we remember what he's done before when we've been in a dark, stormy place, but that's really the only time we want him around. So which one are you, willing or eager? Here's how the story ends. Verse 21, immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. There's actually two miracles in this story. The first is when Jesus walks on water. The second is that on entering the boat, they immediately reach the shore. At one moment, they're in the middle of a lake that stretches seven miles from one side to the other, battling darkness, strong winds, and powerful waves. The next moment, Jesus comes walking towards them. They tell him to get in the boat, and the next thing you know, they've reached the shore. It's amazing what Jesus can do and will do when you let him in the boat. So what's the sign? Who is this Jesus? He is God present in our midst, 
saving his people. Jesus doesn't just make the wind stop. He gets into the boat with you. And so today, as we close, I just simply want to ask, have you invited Jesus into your boat? And if you have, is he your co-pilot or is he your captain? Because with Jesus in your boat, leading your life, you have no reason to fear. You can keep calm and carry on. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that when we see Jesus, we see you. We thank you that that Jesus is is powerful enough to to walk on water, that he identifies himself as the self-existent one, and that this, this Savior that came to earth is so powerful yet he gives us his presence, that God, you are with us. And that's what Jesus promised the disciples. He says, it's better if I go because if if I go, then I'll send another one, a a helper to come. And God, I thank you for for the presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives. So God, I pray that we would know that because you are with us, we have nothing to fear that throughout the storms of life, we are, we're able to keep calm because we know who you are. We know what you've done, and we know that you are with us. And if there's anyone here today who does not have Jesus in their boat, I pray that they wouldn't leave without letting Jesus be the captain of their life, their Savior, their Lord, their Messiah. All praise, all glory, all honor, goes to him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.